Well, good morning, everybody. My name is David Mustard, and I have the privilege of uh, being a part of this community, a people who love Jesus deeply and who want the world to experience that love and to do so in ways where we embody it so that the world gets a glimpse of this Jesus of ours. This weekend, um, my wife and I went to a concert. And I know what you're thinking, we're cool because we go to concerts. It was one of those kinds of concerts that, at least for me in my 40s, you know, it's one where like, oh good, we get to sit down for 80% of it. Because it was, you know, Friday night and after a week of teaching and I was tired. And so we could, thankfully it was great, right? Wonderful concert. I actually told Jordan, I was like, oh yeah, it's an Indigo Girls concert. And for some reason his like knee-jerk reaction was to, to laugh at me. Which was exactly the same reaction my students gave me when I told them, because I thought I would be cooler in their eyes if I said I was going to a concert, and then it went down, which is already starts low when you're a teacher. Anyway, not my point. Um, what was amazing, we were, it was at the State Theater in Kalamazoo, so it's just beautiful space, right? And we're in there, and it's like really beautiful sounds of this band, right? And the guitars and the tight vocals and things like this. But there were a couple of times where they played some of like their classics, like the ones that they're known for. You know, the songs that you all would know because you're big Indigo Girls fans. Anyway, moving on. What was fascinating was the people like just, you know, stood up. Like just without, the, no one said, hey, stand and sing with us, which you might have heard earlier here. People just like reaction. They just stood up and they started singing. And what was even more amazing is Apparently, the band is ready for this because suddenly lights came on that were aimed towards the audience. And suddenly, they were just kind of leading us all in singing these songs that they knew everyone that comes to an Indigo Girls uh, concert is going to know and can sing along to. That was a long introduction to say that's what's happening right now in our story as we're reading the story of Genesis. From chapter 11 to chapter 12, all of a sudden, the lights turn on to the people and there's an expectation that they start singing. That they start joining in this story to a whole new level. No longer are we seated as passive observers to a story, but God says, go. It's your turn to join in. So that's where we're going today as we, in, as we engage this story that God has given to us, the right and true story that is of all things. So would you pray with me, please? Father, may your word be our guide, your spirit, our only teacher, and the glory of Jesus Christ, our single concern, in whose name we pray. Amen. Listen then to the word of the Lord from the book that we love. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, and there was darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering there over the waters. It was Terah who decided to get up from where he was and take with him his son, 
Avram and also his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, who had died, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, the wife of Avram, and set out towards Canaan. They left from Ur of the Chaldeans and made their way, but stopped and settled in Haran. Terah was 205 years old when he died. And the word of the Lord came to Avram and said, Get up, get up from where you are and leave your land, leave your people, leave your father and your family and go to a place that I will show you. For I will bless you and I will make of you a great Nation, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Those you bless, I will bless. Those you curse, I will curse. And the whole world will know of me and be blessed because of you. And Avram went. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to start by looking at, well, we're not going to start. We're going to look at that last section that we just heard from. The story of when God comes down and he says to one person, get up and go. Because that's the pivot point, the moment that the narrative starts to change. But before we get there, let's quickly review where we've been in this story of the book of Genesis, because this is a This is what happens when you get a school teacher to be the talky-talk person on a Sunday because it's like, we should do some reviewing. So we're going to do some reviewing. And it's only, you know, 44 slides long. So it should be fine. It should be fine. (laughs) You thought that that part was not the joke. Moving on. Let's look at this story because biblical scholars like to call Genesis 1 through 11 the first half of the Bible. Like that's... It's very imbalanced halves, by the way. So Genesis 1 through 11 is the first half. The second half is Genesis 12 through Revelation 22 and unto, you know, today. As it continues, the story of God continues to be written in and through, well, us. And so let's look at that story. How does it start? How do we get the foundation of the whole story that will begin to unpack through the rest of the book? But that narrative is set up right here in Genesis 1 through 11. So let's start back at the beginning, the first part that we heard in our, in our sermon, uh, story this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Opening statement stands alone. God is responsible. The author of the book is trying to inform us. God is responsible for everything seen and unseen. And then he starts to tell us again what it all started as. And he said, and in that space that God started creating in, everything was formless and void. And so we hear this idea that it's, there's like this oh, formless and voidness. Now, the problem is I have a hard time picturing that in my head. And the, the ancient writers of this story, the biblical narrative, are very earthy people. They like to touch it and taste it and feel it and see it. And so it's not a wrong translation, formless and void, but it's maybe not picking up on the characteristics that they're hoping that we see in the moment. And so maybe another translation would be wild and waste. 
Now the earth was wild and waste. And suddenly we get in our minds and in our hearts a picture maybe of, you know, the opening scene of one of those old westerns where we hear the... That was a terrible... You know what I'm talking about. But like, you know, a tumbleweed just goes around. There's just a uselessness going on. Like nothing can flourish. Nothing can grow. Nothing can happen because it's wild and it's waste. Nothing is put in the places that it's supposed to be. Or in Hebrew, it's the term... Tohu vavohu. Say tohu vavohu. Good. Well done. You get a, apparently that's you getting a point in your grade book for that. Tohu vavohu. It's wild and waste. It's formless and empty. And so that's what the biblical authors are trying to get us to see. There's this tumult almost. Like it's a kind of like if any of you, you know, I grew up in Holland, and so there, you're, there's boats, right? Lots of boats. And oftentimes, I would like to go to uh, Holland State Park. And there, if you go and you can watch in the channel boats coming in and out, but you also see the currents of Lake Makatawa and the big lake coming together. And you just see like these like... You guys, I just realized, like I don't even know why I'm bobbing. I'm apparently in the water doing this. But you know what I'm saying, right? Like, you see these currents and these waves kind of colliding. It's not like the waves that are kind of graciously coming in when you're there on the shore of Lake Michigan. As they, I mean, they're crashing and stuff, but now they're like running into each other and you can't see any kind of rhythm to them. That's the picture. That's the picture that the biblical author wants us to see in the beginning. There's, we've got a problem and there's too much water and it's like crashing into each other. And it's creating this tumult of of the sea, of the surface of the deep. It's in a, in a way that, again, is creating this wild and wastefulness where nothing can flourish. And it's into that chaos, if we want to use one particular word, into that tohu, into that wild and wastefulness that we hear is the very ruach of God. Say ruach. Yeah, you got to... It ends with a... Uh, Hebrew is a guttural language, so if you don't feel it in the back of your throat, it's, it, when you're learning Hebrew, everyone just thinks you have a bad cold because you're clearing your throat all the time. Turns out that's just the language. So everyone go, <sighs> there you go. Okay, now say ruach. See, good. The ruach, it's the word, the Hebrew word there that we translate the spirit of God. It's true, it's the word spirit, but it's also the word wind and the word breath. Those three words, the English words, are all coming from the Hebrew word ruach. So in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this tumult, we see the very ruach, the very spirit of God hovering there over the surface of the deep. And then, just by his voice, God, in the midst of that tohu, in the midst of that chaos, speaks and he says let there be light and there was i mean that's all it took that's all it took for the god of all things to just speak a word and everything comes into existence what was disorganized becomes put into place what was chaotic suddenly begins to flourish and we see the realities of all the things that god is hoping to see come into being come into being. It's an area where God brings about His shalom. Oftentimes, we 
translate the Hebrew word shalom into like peace. And it's not wrong, but there's more to it. I like what Cornelius Planting, a spiritual forebear of institutions like our own in this same tradition, says shalom is the webbing together of God, humanity, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. What does God bring out of the tohu? What does he happen to just have to speak into and suddenly it comes into being? Shalom breaks out. So all it takes is his voice for shalom, the way things are supposed to be in fulfillment, justice, and delight just happens. That's all it takes. And so shalom breaks out on planet earth and order comes flourishing out of the wild and waste, out of the chaos, out of the tohu vavohu, God speaks and shalom breaks out. And for two whole chapters of the thousands in the whole book, for two whole chapters, things are just the way God wants them to be. He starts walking around the garden with his people And God is able to enjoy this love and this life with his creation. Of course, if you've been here at least in our series, you know that that's not where things end. And we turn the page, and in the next page, we meet a character. On page 3, in chapter 3 of the Bible, we see this deceiver character. It comes in the form of the serpent. We as readers know that this is the devil himself, but what he does is he deceives humanity into going their own way. Now, theologically, of course, we're going to talk about this as sin and things like that, but maybe it's even more than that, I think, because it's a reality where people, humanity, Adam and Eve, at least in the story, are deceived that their way is just as good as God's way, if not better. And humanity is deceived to say, well, God said not to do this, but I think this is the better path, so we should probably just go ahead and do that. And the deceiver, the devil, deceives humanity, and it brings them into exile. God has to take his crown of creation outside of the garden, outside of Eden, and says, there's something between us now. And now you are exiled away, away from this cosmic unity where we are dwelling with all of creation and with this God in justice, fulfillment, and delight. It's not possible anymore. Because you have chosen your own way, because you've gone the other direction, you have exiled yourself from my presence. And every single time that happens, it will bring about... I'm winning here. You don't worry, everybody. This happens when you should look at your phone and what slide you're clicking on. Every single time, that brings us back to chaos. This now is the story of Genesis 3 through 11. What we see happening in Genesis 3 through 11 is this cycle happening. Every time God is trying now, since chapter 3, and we started to go our own way and we are exiled, God is trying to get us back to shalom. He wants this flourishing to happen. He wants this cosmic unity again. But humanity goes its own way. 
chapter 4, we hear this story where Cain and Abel, the two children of Adam and Eve, bring an offering to God. And God looks with favor upon the offering of one of the brothers, but not of the other. And for some reason, we don't know why this is true, Cain, the one who brought the offering that was not looked on with favor, gets angry. And God says to him, Cain, be careful. Because chata, chata is the word sin. It's the first time we hear this, the word sin in the whole of the Bibles in chapter 4. Chata is crouching outside of your door. That sin is right there. Don't open the door, Cain. The next verse, he goes in and opens the door. And Cain went and said to his brother, Brother, come, Abel, let's go out into the woods. And there he overcame his brother and he killed him. His blood soaked into the ground and the ground has cried out because of it. Cain goes his own way and we find ourselves deeper into Tohu. It's next we read about Lamech. And Lamech's like, oh, you saw Cain. He took vengeance on his brother, but man, I killed a guy for scratching me. And suddenly we see it's even deeper into chaos. It's the next chapter that we find out that God looks down at the whole of the earth and everything is evil all the time. And he's like, this cannot be. This is not what I've created. This is not the flourishing, the shalom that I'm hoping to break out. I need to fix it. And so he says, I need to hit a hard reset on all creation. So he comes to one man named Noah and says, We've got to build ourselves a rescue vessel. We need to rescue all of creation from this calamity. The word is teva. Say teva. Teva is the word that we translate ark in English. And it's, again, not a wrong translation. And yet, we have only one other time in the whole biblical narrative. And it's in Exodus. Exodus chapter 2. It's here that a strong and courageous Hebrew woman who refuses to listen to the edict of Pharaoh and have her child, her son, killed, so she hides him away. But there comes a point where she can't hide him any longer. And so she puts him in a teva. We translate it basket there. Ark one way, basket. For some reason we think one looks like a ship and one looks like you know the thing that holds bread on your dining room table. Maybe that's not the point of the story is to tell you what it looks like. It tells you God is going to rescue because that's what this God does. He rescues his people from the chaos, from the tohu of this world. So he says, build me a rescue vessel, Noah, and bring some of the animals inside. You know, two of every kind and and seven of every clean animal, which is interesting because we don't have the purity laws yet. Different conversation for a different time. Either way, he brings them into the ark, into the teva, into the rescue vessel, and God rescues all of creation. And we're like, all right, we got it. Like, we're getting back. We're going to get back to shalom. This is how God's going to do this whole thing. And finally, like, the teva comes to rest on a mountain. And the first thing that Noah does when he gets out, what does he do? He plants a garden. You're like, okay, well, like, that's, that, that's what happened on page two. Like God's in the garden. He plants a vineyard. And then the next verse again, he gets drunk and it uh, all falls apart again. Like we were almost there, we thought, as we read through this story. And we spiral even further when humanity, instead of 
filling the earth so that the whole earth might understand this love of this God. Instead, they've come together to make a name for themselves. They want to reach the heavens. They want to be like this God. And God says, this is not the plan. So he confounds their language and he spreads them out. And we're end, we end chapter 11 with this question of like, what's happening? We're finding ourselves in this chaos. What is this God going to do? And then we turn to chapter 12. We start to hear what God is planning to do next because God is completely unsatisfied leaving his people and his world in a state of tohu. He wants nothing more than shalom to break out yet again. And so God says, I need to take my world that has now been thrust into chaos, into tohu vavohu, by the human decision of the people that I've created, and I need to move it back to shalom. This is what's going to take the rest of, well, the Bible, and all of human history for God to continue to do. Because what God is going to do is start to write a whole new story here. Starting in Genesis chapter 12, we have plan B starts. And it's still the one that he's sticking with. It's taking a little longer than I wished it would have. Plan B of God's story. Plan A, humanity dwell in cosmic relationship with him. The problem is we abandoned plan A. And we said, eh, this plan over here looks pretty great. And he's like, no, come back. So he starts writing a whole new story. And he does so with Abraham, because it's here in this story that God is hoping beyond hope to establish or at least reestablish his kingdom. I want this shalom reality to break out, God says. And for some reason, humanity keeps going their own way. And so he's on this mission to redeem all of creation from the chaos, from the tohu vavohu, and back into a state of shalom. And he's going to do that in a very unique way. Because instead of just like, you know, speaking it like he did the first time, God says, I'm going to use human partners. Like, this is a plot twist. This, like, those humans are the ones that messed it up, you know, on page three. You're going to trust humanity to be the solution to this cosmic problem that we find ourselves in? Apparently, this is the plan that God has. And it starts to unfold. And he says, I made these humans, you know, up here, when everything was the way it was supposed to be. I made humanity in my image. They're the ones that walk around and look like and embody my very nature and character. And if those human people, if those image-bearing people take seriously the love and the compassion that I have for them, they will be able to reestablish, redeem all of creation back to a state of shalom. So what's that going to take? Well, they can't just like, you know, hang out in Shalomville and create these nice little pockets where, you know, everything is just right. We call that a cult. Anyway, 
what they're supposed to do, although again it seems crazy of a plan, they have to go towards the chaos. They have to be really, really good chaos identifiers. Not hiding into the easy way in which things could go for themselves, but being willing to even take off the beauty and the ease of life and engaging the difficult and the hard of the world around them. They have to be the kind of people that engage chaos. Oh, not engage it to become like it or just to to love it, but instead to, again, move it from its current state of chaos and into a state of shalom. They're called, these human partners that we'll start reading about in the rest of the story are hearkened to go seek out the chaos of this world in their human heart and in the systems in this world and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. God wants more. The love of this God that is shown deeply in every page wants us, his human partners, to engage that chaos and bring about hope and light and love. That's the story. That's the whole story. And nothing has changed. Why does God have to come down in the person of Jesus Christ? Why does God have to send his son? Because it's the plan he went with right here at the very beginning. I need human partners. And these human partners, for the rest of at least this whole section of the scriptures, couldn't get it right. They tried time and time again to live such lives that went towards the chaos and brought about God's shalom. And every single time they fell flat on their faces and succumbed to the chaos of this world. So God says, I'll come down and I will show them. I will show them in the person of my son exactly what it's like to engage the chaos and bring shalom. Who does Jesus hang out with? Does he hang out with the ones who are all religiously put together and and know the book? No, 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 no. He goes to the sinners and the tax collectors. He goes to the leper, to the deaf, to the mute. And he says, let me engage that chaos. And let me show you what shalom can look like. And then he dies. How, How in the world is shalom supposed to break out now? Oh, he gets resurrected and he says, I'll give you, my human partners, those who say yes to the name of Jesus, I'll give you my Holy Spirit. That same Ruach that was present at the very beginning of all time is now going to unleash itself into God's human part and says, go. So what does God do on the first verses of chapter 12, when we see this plan B start, he says, get up. Get up from where you are and go. Go to the chaos. Oh, leave your country, leave your people, leave your family and go. Oh, I know, Avram, you have everything that you need. You've become quite wealthy, turns out, in Haran, in your father's house. Go. There's a world of chaos out there. 
I don't need to convince anyone in this room that we live in a world of chaos. The question is, will his human partners take it seriously enough to go? Seems like the appropriate place to end. But I need to teach you some geography. You know, that sounds normal. Um, So let me just, I just want to show you briefly where this is in the world. So this changed changed my world, to be brutally honest. Um, And it changed my faith, this little piece of geography. And so maybe that's why I feel like I I should obviously tell it to you. This is the ancient world um, that we start learning about here in Genesis uh, chapter 12, right? So this is the world that we'll be reading about in the rest of the biblical narrative. And what's fascinating, at least to me, is this is the promised land. Now, the promised land or, or is, can fit inside of Lake Michigan. So it's not a large piece of real estate. So I always thought, you know, like, oh, you know, promised land, you know, U.S.-ish size, right? No, it's tiny. It can fit in Lake Michigan. And, but what's interesting about where God calls him. So he says, I want you to come up from Ur of the Chaldeans. Turns out we don't know where that is. We know where Ur is. Just the Chaldeans aren't living there at this time. But again, a whole other conversation. And he says, I want you to go from the Ur of the Chaldeans to the place that I will show you. Now, if we put on here the ancient people who are living throughout the biblical narrative, at least, it's at this time the Egyptians are ruling down in Egypt. Good place for the Egyptians to rule is in Egypt. Moving on. Um, right? And so that's who's living down in the south uh, uh, from where the people of God are. As we continue in the narrative, we'll hear of these other great empires that will be out into the, uh, whatever that direction is, east of them. Babylon, Assyria, uh, Persia, and later Parthia, in the New Testament at least. Um, those are going to be off uh, to their east. And then, of course, we'll hear about Greece and we'll hear about Rome later on in the narrative. That's not my point. What we... What is super important, I think, for us to understand as we continue in our story in the book of Genesis is what's happening in this very small sliver of real estate taking place here in the world at this time. This red line symbolizes a major trade route. It's called the International Coastal Highway. And what it does is it loops up down there on the bottom here, uh, right where it comes up. Down that way is where Ur is. And this is where... Abram comes up with his dad and his uh, nephew, Lot, and his wife, and they start traveling along that route, as far as we can tell. It goes on this big arc because the lighter color there is complete desert. That's the Arabian Desert. Uh, This is the Arabian Peninsula still today. And so they're coming up along that red line, which is what we referred to, Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, if you remember from, you know, your ninth grade history classes, you know, because that was recent. Moving on. Um, Haran, where they stop, is about, if you see where Persia is, the word Persia, if you go to the left a little bit along that line, there's a little dip down in the darker color. That's about where Haran is. That's where they stop. We don't know why, other than, again, as the narrative continues, God still needs to call Abram deeper into his mission. And so it's maybe partly why. And then he comes and settles here. In Canaan, where the darker shading area is, where the promised land is. And this international coastal highway, which at its peak has over 15 million people traveling it from around the world. This trade road goes all the way east through India and further east. 
It is the trunk road of major travel and trade in this time of, the, uh, of history. Coming off from that into the north is going to be another major trade route. comes the King's Highway. And then later on, we'll see this trade route when Rome becomes called the Way of the Sea. By the time of the New Testament, Herod the Great builds a port city right here, making it even more impactful. Why do I tell you all of this? Where God ends up calling Abraham is not to some little place out in the middle of nowhere. God puts Abraham and his people, the ones who are called to put God on display in a profound way, meeting the needs of humanity, meeting the chaos of this world with the hope and shalom of God, he doesn't put them out in the middle of nowhere. He puts them at the crossroads of the world. God isn't asking his human partners to hide our cower in the face of chaos. He says, go. And it's still his plan today. So where? Where is it for you? Where is your crossroads? Where is it tomorrow morning when you show up at work? Where God says, this is where I want you to bring hope and light and love to the world. It's broken. It's chaotic. But his solution to that chaos is you. He believes in it so much that he decided to send his son to die to make it possible. I've appreciated my family as we have been moved to this community just less than two years ago. We've so appreciated this place because that's the mission that you all have already bought into. I've had the privilege of, of showing up to be part of thinking about the, the attic back here. The attic exists for one reason. It's this. Because turns out there are people in our community in chaos. And there's nothing more than this place wants to support and finding ways to meet that and help students write a better story that is flooded with the hope and the light of Jesus Christ. If you don't know about the attic, talk to Jordan. He knows all about it because he's the executive director now. Isn't that great to go to a church who has their pastor as an executive director of an after-school program? That guy must believe in this. And so do you. So if you don't know exactly what chaos God is calling you towards, there's one option. You can go and volunteer at the attic. Or join in prayer. Find out about the stories that these kids are writing that look have a whole lot more shalom in them than chaos. I don't need to convince you of the chaos in this world. I want to remind you that Jesus Christ died, rose again, and sent His Spirit so that the rest of us could leave this place this morning and go out and put Him on display and magnify the name of Jesus everywhere we go. Believe this gospel and live in its peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, please. Father, I I must confess, there's 
a lot of better plans I think we could, could come up with. I wish you would just speak shalom into being again. I wish just by your very word, in the same way it came at creation, that you would just make shalom happen. But you trust us. You trust us to take your story and the light of Jesus so seriously that we engage this chaos with that same kind of love, with that same kind of hope, and that same kind of light, and bring it into the darkness of this world. So may it be so. May these people, all of us together, link ourselves arm in arm to magnify the name of Jesus so that the world may see our good deeds and give glory to you and you alone. We love you and bless you and pray these things in the resurrected name of Jesus our Messiah. Amen.